It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Palmerbet on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight up screamer. Download our app today and enjoy straight up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos, and same game multi at Palmerbet. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1 800 858 858. But a champion becomes a legend. McCarty Debra's won it. Perkins goes in first. What a legend. What a champion. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. As always, it is a great pleasure to have you with us for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life, Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And today, we celebrate the life of a man who made his mark on the cricket field. He had a few battles when he wore the baggy green cap. Unlike anything that he's been experiencing lately, his name is Gavin Robertson, and he's with me. Robbo, welcome. How are you, please? Well, I'm well, but the most important question is, how are you? Uh, yeah, I'm getting there. Um, I'm like a typical cricketer, I'm at 117 at the moment, so uh, I count each day, and uh, that's the way I look at it. And, but um, going all right, not too bad. Getting a bit more strength and getting around a bit more, so it's good. Many people will have heard about your story in the last couple of months. There will be some who didn't. Hmm. Tell us what happened. Uh, well, I was on my radio show, and I'd sent... Uh, Charlie Teo a message weirdly whilst I'm on here I still don't know why I did that but this I is said, the well-known brain surgeon yeah I met Charlie me and Steve War met Charlie 20 years ago and just like the way he, he reminded us of one of our teammates he just went for it you know with regard to I couldn't he, he invited us to uh, surgeries I couldn't go and watch surgery but Stephen could but that idea of I'm going to go for it try and save this life so uh, we've, we've been mates for a long time, and I sort of said, I have this weird thing in the morning sometimes, I clean my teeth, six o'clock and get a pain behind my left eye. And then I just got this message after radio on the way home, you know, Bing, call me in the morning. Oh, okay, I'll do that. So I called him next morning, and he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm just at the Giants. He goes, well, come see me. I was like, oh, well, yeah, I've got a few things to do before I get the radio. No, 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 just come over now. And I, I actually didn't get to see him. I literally drove there. I got there and Lane, who runs his office there, she said, come downstairs, Gav, and um, put a cannula in and you can have an MRI. I thought, oh, okay, I'll do the right thing, you know, get things checked. And, and he said, he'll get to you, Charlie's flat out, he'll get to you. And I said, yeah, okay. So I went to work and had to go to the Giants game at the MCG. We played Hawthorne, got beaten. And um, the next morning I wanted to go to Richmond football club to do some look a look at their community programs and because uh, the Giants community program's going well and we wanted to sort of keep learning you know and then my daughter who now lives in Melbourne uh, she was driving me to Richmond and the phone rang and normally Charlie would say to me hey mate it's Charlie how you going and this day hey mate it's your brain surgeon how you going I went yeah yeah good uh, I, I know you're a brain surgeon he goes well you know I will be yeah um I said, what's going on? He said, this is your result, and where are you now? I said, well, I'm n- literally in the middle of Melbourne. He said, we'll just drive to the airport, and uh, we'll get you on a plane. And uh, I've rung Tugger, I've rung Steve Waugh, and uh, he's going to pick you up at about 3.30, 4. 
and he's going to bring you to me and I'm taking it out and I was like really nobody's prepared for a moment like that how did no. you react I just I didn't really not going to act tough I didn't handle it that well luckily my daughter was there and she's pretty quiet Zoe pretty but internally pretty tough and she just took over the, and sorted it all out and and then um, I went weirdly sort of very quiet you know and I sat at uh, Tullamarine and uh, everything crashed at the airport you couldn't get onto a plane and and I met a fellow uh, called uh, Frankie or Francois a couple of years ago and he's very heavily into business but also AFL and that and he, he literally walked up and said to them I'll go off the plane put this bloke on it you know and anyway the next minute I'm on the plane and I get off and I walk out and Lynette wore 13 years ago I don't know if you remember Lynette had uh, a brain bleed and she literally was lucky to make it and I'd sort of had a lot to do with that at that stage and you know she, for her to sort of walk up and I was like what are you doing here and she said well you know you were here for me 13 years ago and I'm here for you now we're going to drive you to Charlie and that's really next minute I just remember turning up to see getting to Prince of Wales Hospital walking upstairs and this is five hours from, since the phone call and Charlie walked over and gave me a hug and I said um what do we need to do? And he said, like we always do, we're going to go for it. And um, that was it. Next minute, I I remember going in and signing some papers and doing all that sort of stuff. And the next thing I remember, waking up the next morning, 7 o'clock in the morning, and Richard Cheekway, the former New South Wales batsman, and I always say Cheeks is a, a greater lead singer for Six Sound. He's brilliant. <laughs> but, um, he Talk was, about the band later on. Yeah, he was just sitting there and... Literally, hold my arm. There you go. It was just a crazy experience. For Let's call it a 12-hour experience. What did Steve Waugh say to you in that car ride from the airport to the hospital? Um, yes, Stephen's greatest attribute is his one sentence. Uh, today, we live in an environment where coaches or even parents or young kids, it's, it's 100 sentences. Stephen's theoretically just a very simple identifier of what's needed to do if you're batting bowling or facing a surgery that's so like and it's never like i hope this goes well it's just it's gonna go let's go let's do it let's go and get let's go and put 200 on because we don't like these blokes let's go and do this and he was very you know let's just get the charlie he'll get you in there and he'll get it done you know you, you, you'll be right he must have said you'll be right three or four times but that's really how he you know, he acts. And it's important for you to hear something like that at that time because you don't know whether you're going to be right or not. But if no. you get that reassurance from somebody hmm. who you respect, then that can mean a bit. I think we're, we're, you know, it doesn't matter what you're up against. You always, you, most of us will reconsider the good and the bad. I mean, I, you know, my test debut, I'm none for 52 off 10. I was considering the bad, but I had a, a good job running shelf management at, back home in the grocery industry I thought okay and luckily you know Tubby when Tubby finally brought me back on you know Stephen simply his idea was I'll go get the cap and remind him and that reminder was pretty brutal you know it was basically you wouldn't put up with this if we were back home playing at Bankstown or whatever so let's get stuck into these blokes and off we went and it, I think that's the way if I'm a parent, there's a whole heap of parents out there trying to, you know, I've got 29, 26 and 23, but the biggest thing I've tried to is 
say to them, don't worry about whatever it is negative. What, what is the use? I just, just theoretically, and we all do it, but, but in the end, what is the use? And that's, that's the aim of life, and Stephen's message was no different, and that's really how most of us think. You're about to go into surgery. Mm. You wouldn't be human if you weren't thinking, I may not come out of this, or I may not come out the way that I want. What were those moments like for you? Um, with regard to the, you know, it's once you get to the brain, it's not like you're getting, you know, a knee surgery or you know when we were applying a shoulder surgery or whatever. And it's, uh, I, I would be honest and think I was very much go for it. And almost I don't care. Because what is the option? It's like, okay, if you don't go for it, and they might have to leave a bit there, okay, well, that might be okay, but there's no guarantee. There's no guarantees anyway. And what if I, you know, there's a, if there's a better guarantee that you go for it, and okay, I might not speak that well, or I might walk slower, or it might be whatever. It could be really bad. But I was literally, my mind was, if I could sit in the lounge room, watch the sport, you know, have a feed and my kids are around and still be a part of life, well, that's good enough, that'll do. So you can look into it too far being perfect. But to be honest, Pete, bugger perfection. Mm. Just take whatever comes to, and make the best of everything that comes. And it can be bad. But, you know, I've met lots of people over the years that, where it's been bad and you should see them, you know. It's like they just turn it around. You know, I mean... Johnny McLean's a great example of, you know, he got hit on the M4, quadriplegic, can't walk for 26 years. Today he walks around just because he never, never gave up on the positivity. So, and you know what, the great thing about that is that, and I try to say to my kids, Johnny McLean's old man walked up to him and said, okay, let's see what you can do in life now, how far you can go. So, you know, you and I growing up, we had a very a telephone in the lounge room, world was easy. Kids today, phones, social media, just there's so much that can collaborate uh, a negative piece of their mind. So, yeah, positive's the way to go. That's, that's the way. I haven't seen you for a while, Robbo. I must say, when I first laid eyes on you, I thought you looked pretty well, considering everything that you've been through. How's the prognosis? How's everything going? Yes, yeah, so I'm through. I'm into... Um, Basically, you go through the first four-week period operation and first four weeks of what is it, finding out what it is, and then getting to a decision. So I had to find out if it was a melanoma tumour or a, a primary brain cancer. So I ended up grade four primary brain. And then, again, the call from Charlie was very simple. Okay, sorry, mate, you've got grade four primary brain cancer. You're booked in Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday. You've got three doctors to see, two CT scans, a bunch of MRIs and PET scans, etc. This is what's happening. So I did all that and uh, the way I can look at it now is I'm at the stage where I did the first four weeks, then you got 42 days straight of radiation and chemotherapy, which is whatever, you call that tough, but I don't see it as being tough, I see it as a chance. And then you get four weeks off. That's probably when you're at your most tired and I got through that, and now I'm at the third week after that. So what happens then from cases like mine, you go into a six-month program. So for one week, it's heavy chemo, and then three weeks off. And you do that for six months. But you have an MRI every eight weeks. So my first MRI, they were happy with, and that's 
all that I, I said, okay, what's next? So they're happy with you know, how it's looking. You know, you can have a very big cloud area. My cloud area was a lot better than you know, that it could have been, so I'm happy with that. And I, now my next point is to get to the, what is it now, five more weeks I have an MRI and go again mm. and try and get a good result. You know, basically I see it as I'm just trying to get a 50, like Marnus Labuschagne, keep my career going. Let's hope you do. Gavin Robertson is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Just one last thing in this break on your illness, and you talked about the fact that you've got a plan for yourself. On that whiteboard, have you given yourself goals? Yeah, I just I want to get back to um, just how I would work. The Giants in the morning, radio in the afternoon, um, and... And then just small things, you know, basically want to keep my fitness up. I spoke to Mark Hughes a, a fair bit who played for the Knights and gone through the same f- same thing. He talked about his fitness levels and his dietary. So I'm keeping s- to stick on those things. But to be honest, Pete, small goals mm. and things that I'm happy with, you know, being interested in, you know, can I get on a water ski again? Can I, you know, help coach a bit? Can I just be interested in doing stuff that I enjoy? Because the best thing, I got lucky that, the greatest thing about getting, let's call it a bit crook, um, you know, I might make 20 years, so that'd be great. And then I forgot all, I got rid of all of the BS about, oh, well, you've got to get to 65 and then try and retire and then try not to weigh the government down with having to pay you to survive. Well, all that's a lot of BS, Pete. So now it's about, what about this week, this month, and just simple and move forward. We wish you well. Cheers. We'll take a break, and then we'll start talking cricket and your sporting career. Gavin Robertson is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. More coming up with Robbo after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Hope you're enjoying the chat with Gavin Robertson on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Robbo, I said you'd faced one battle and we've spoken about that in the first break. Let's talk about the other battles you faced on the cricket field. Where did it all begin? Where did the love affair with the game of cricket begin for you? Um, It was a fluke. I was... um sort of coaxed into playing in the under 11s. I was mainly a soccer player. I love soccer. And um, I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll play. And, you know, my mates are playing. And somehow I fluked seven wickets in the first game and I was completely stuck and addicted. And soccer went to the side a little bit and I was just into it. Within about a year, I got picked into the New South Wales Primary Schools Association and met these two big-headed you know, blokes from Bankstown, twins that I couldn't handle. I grew up in Dundas Valley, which wasn't the best place to grow up. And I really grew up in an environment where you didn't talk too much about yourself. So for everyone at 11 and a half talking about these two twins at Bankstown, I was like, give me a break, you know, let's get stuck into these (laughs) blokes. And so then I got picked in the New South Wales squad and the two twins were in there. And for about a year or two, I used to fight with them. I mean, I've been best mates ever since. So what did you fight about? They were too bloody good, Pete. I, uh, some, you know when you're young and you don't like getting beaten, sometimes you get a bit tired of getting beaten. And, 
you know, they used to just come out and go for it. And, you know, I remember thinking we had a really good side and, you know, I think we got 220 and they came out and got them in. I think we only played 40 overs, but they got them 10 overs less and did it easy, one or two down. I thought, oh, and that kept happening a bit. And then I thought, oh, we're going to play rep soccer against each other because they also played soccer, Mark and Steve. Um, and then I thought, we'll flog them here. And I remember at cricket training during the winter telling them, <laughs> come up against the Granville team, we'll flog you. And it was the only good thing. I scored one goal, but getting beaten 4-1 was just horrible, Pete. Mm. So I just, I think at 14, I just gave up. I went, bugger it, I'll just be mates with these blokes. But they look, they're good blokes. They're loyal. The biggest thing about them is they're loyal. Might not talk all day like some of us, but yeah, they'll, they'll stick, stick strong. Shocking question when you're good mates with both of them. Mm. Who was a better player? Because the debate rages to this day. I think they're equal in two phases. Um, they're, le- they're equal in the outcome. The only thing is, Stephen got dropped enough to just want us, you know, that 40 won't do, you know, 60 will do as an average. But Stephen, you know, had enough times where he was dropped. But to me, okay, let's call Mark the um, the V12 Jaguar. Okay? I was just thinking of that analogy. He's sort of the, he's almost like the F1 car. Yeah. And maybe Steve's a bit more like your V8 that is a little bit battered around the edges but still goes yeah. bloody fast. Yeah, he's that HQ Monaro. Yeah. Um, might struggle against, um, you know, the new V8 supercar, but... You'll still get the same outcome, to be honest. Mark and Steve. Mark, Mark generally made stuff look beautiful, and Stephen just made stuff look like it was work, and that's fine. And, and I, I'd, uh, it's a toss of the coin who you'd pick first. If you're at school, when you'd pick your teams at school, like you know, you say I'll have you and you have him. But just you know, Mark just does things in a majestic way. He does golf the same and tennis. Uh, Stephen just plays sport in a tough way. It's a battle. He loves the battle. Bring it on. So. That's where they're different. Their outcomes are the same. They just look different. So, you know, one's got, you know, size 11 feet and one's got size 7. So they're just a little bit different, but theoretically their outcomes are the same. All right, you flicked off soccer. You're concentrating on cricket. Mm. How quickly did the progression come from someone who enjoyed playing cricket and took seven wickets at the first attempt to someone who might take the next step and take the biggest step of all? I got out of radiation in Royal North Shore on my first day, walked out, and I was a little bit sort of jaded. And I walked about 10 metres, and I looked in the chair and thought, what's Chapelli doing there? And I said, hey, mate, what are you doing? He goes, same as you, pal. No one knows at the moment. <laughs> so Ian Chappell was into his second week of his chemo and radiation, and... Um, we just sat and talked, and he goes, and this is where it started for me. I was lucky, just got into the night. I had a bad year and just got into the New South Wales on the 19s, went to Tassie. And then did okay down there, got some runs also. So I sort of got picked as the third spin bowler to go to India for the Australian under-19 tour. And, you know, a guy at bats, but be the third. I was like, I was the drinks guy, I thought. And we had a trip to Canberra and Ian Chappell and Richie Benno captained the squad. Uh, eight versus eight, I think it was. And those two guys were playing at Canberra and we learned so much in one day. And I bowled that day and apparently you went to Bob Bitmead, the coach, who used to play for Victoria. And he told Bitters, he said that this off spinner might be not in your starting, but, you know, he'll probably be there. 
you should keep an, an eye on him and I think he's the guy that can do a lot more than you think. And I went to India, I was carrying drinks and got one go and got four wickets and didn't miss a game from then on and came back straight into the New South Wales squad. You know, I went from being maybe 30, 40, number 40 in the juniors, in the 19s, to, or, or, or just out of it, to being straight into the uh, Sheffield Shield squad. Because I'd started playing first grade when I was 16 and a half under Ian, Cha uh, Ian Davis, who played for Balmain, was captain of Balmain. But that's really, for me, where it turned. And it was really, I don't know how Ciappelli, what he saw, but it was a really good break. And next minute, it just got going. And everything went out the door. Family, soccer, everything. Mm. I just worried. I just dreamt and ate cricket every day. We think of you predominantly as an offie, but your batting was pretty handy, wasn't it? Did you make a 99, first class 99? Yeah, I did, yeah. I, I didn't want to get 100 because I probably didn't think I'd get too many hundreds and people will, will remember 99. <laughs> I, I was a good, That's what Warney says, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, he does all the time. I was a good... I was a good Batsman until about 14, and I grew five inches in nine months or something, ten months. And I was like a, you know, a newly born horse or a giraffe. I just had no coordination for about two years, and I really struggled with the bat. I went from three down to about seven or eight, and spent the rest of my life batting seven or eight. But I just, getting tall, I, I, I was actually small when I learned to play cricket and bat, so I struggled a bit, but my technique struggled. I, I wasn't good at getting forward so that, that really affected my batting and I just became primarily off-spitter who batted but you know at times it could work for you um, like uh, like my test my, probably my test debut because I don't know I actually still haven't had this conversation with heels although we're good mates but I was rooming with with Tugger in India and he goes he walks in after the meeting and goes well congratulations what for I said he goes you're going to play the first test I said I think I said, get stuffed, Pete. You're kidding me. I think I, I actually said that. Because how am I going to get picked in fr front of Shane Warne, let alone Stuart McGill? Stewie just taken five for against South Africa in Adelaide, gone to India. How's he going to be dropped? But they wanted a leg spinner and an off spinner, so I'm in. And I was shocked. And I said, how did I get picked? He goes, myself and the coach. Yeah, uh, uh, him. No, the Jeff Marsh, Mark Taylor. And it was 2-1. I said, who was the one? He said, heels. And he said that he wanted Adam Dale to be in. Heels wanted Adam Dale. Now, I don't even know if that's true, but I'm pretty sure that Stephen wanted to fire me up. It was just he, he knows me backwards and wanted to throw a prawn out there and try and fish a bit. And I remember thinking, geez, it's that hot. Luckily, I'm in the best team in the world because I get a couple of days to sit down and rest a bit. And we were eight for 180, I think. You know, I thought, how can the best team in the world be eight for 180? But I had to go out and bat, and I was batting with Ian Healy. And to be really honest, walking out, I had that sentence in my head, I'm going to show this bloke. Because Heels would always fight you hard. When New South Wales would play Queensland, Heels would never let you go. He just had, he, he seems like a really nice guy, which he is, but he's actually really tough. So, and we put on 100 and something, 105, 110 or something, and we got our side out of a bit of rubbish, but we batted for four hours together and that mateship was founded in the middle of Chennai. And that was the time to use it, when it mattered. If you play test cricket anywhere, it's an assault on your senses, but in particular in India, hmm. with the atmosphere there, what sort of a culture shock was it going pretty quickly up to the big time and wearing a baggy green and playing on the subcontinent? 
Oh, for me, it was like, well, it wasn't actually as big as, uh, like, shock to me as most because I had endured the weirdest... Well, if you go back to 95, Australia are playing Australia, eh? Etc. That you, you know, that series here mm. in Australia. The year before that, I was playing for Australia. And then all of a sudden, I went into the boondocks, dropped out of the Australian squads. Uh, then I came home. Seven days later, I was dropped out of the New South Wales team. and I, So we had no contracts and I couldn't feed the kids. Five weeks later, I'm at Centrelink and then I hide because I can't handle being somewhat people knowing you, not no job and being at Centrelink. So I pre- pretty much Monday to Friday spent four months in Parramatta Park and in a really fast way of telling you, luckily an old bloke in front of me told me about his life. I spent four hours with him. I got a job two days later and I've not not worked since but I'd been through enough to two years later get picked for New South Wales and then all of a sudden for Australia make a test debut in India that I was just glad to play did all of that up and down that you had in your career the the highs and then pretty low lows Hmm. did that stand you in good stead for what's just happened to you yeah yeah I would think so like I mean I I did I'm not saying I haven't had my years where I thought well I I would have liked life to be better and easier and I should have done this and I should have done that. To steal a line from this old man I met in the park, he said, what do you want, son? He said, I, you know, he knew I was a cricketer and he said, what do you want? Do you, do you just want to, it to be perfect? Because if it is perfect, if you make it to 80 or 90 and you go to heaven one day, it'll, you'll just exist. You know, you won't have made any difference. You won't have fought for any difference. You won't have changed other people's lives or left any type of legacy. So what do you want? If you want it perfect, that's fine, I'll just go and you, good luck. But if you want to really dig in and, you know, you get to that point where we get old and we leave, try and make a difference. And that was really the best thing. And that's probably, I, I don't, I'm not fussed about whatever happens. Um, it's what's my next chance to just go for it. And that's really what you want to teach your kids. Because we, you know, they're brought up in a life where everything's going to be perfect. Mm. And we, 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 our media and our polit- politicians—they're trying to do that. I think don't make it too perfect, because what are you bringing up? When you got to the end of your career for Australia, mm. what was the feeling like? Did you feel as though you were privileged to be able to do that? Did did you feel as though that maybe you could have done a little bit more? What was what was the overriding recap of your career? Uh, from a personal point. Yeah, no, I, I was I saw myself as lucky and I gave it everything. Mm. I, there's you could write a there's a blackboard of stuff ups and mistakes and mind mistakes and attitudes and right through the sixteen years. Yeah, but who doesn't make blues along the way? Exactly. I mean I um yeah, like I, I think about it. I knew in well my last trip was Pakistan of ninety eight. It's the last time we've been to Pakistan and I blew a shoulder out that was gone, completely gone. And I should have just come home and got a surgery and just gone onto the medical uh, list for 12 months to get over it, still being paid, and I couldn't do that. I just, at 33, I think, I, I couldn't. And I went to Pat Farhat and I said, don't let them send me home. Because I, I was logical enough that if I go home, I'm probably not going to get back in 12 months. And I, from nine, I've been wanting to play a test match, and there's two left. So I'll do anything to stay, you know. And he, I grew up with Patrick Farhad, who was physio at the time, and he said to them, give, give me two days if I can get him right. 
and I just slept in his room for two days and he treated me every hour and a half for two days and then he said I don't know if we're going to get there but they said you've got to bowl on the last day of this tour match before the next test or they're sending you home and I said how can I do that he goes there's a veterinarian hospital just down the road in Royal Pindi and that's where I think I've sorted you can get a cortisone down there we're going to put four into the different angles to try and and I went yep go for it really and the next day I changed my action from normal to like two windmills to get my shoulder going to then bowl the ball so I'd sort of do a windmill and then bowl and I got through and I think I jagged two for 50 off 20 and I got through didn't play the next test and no one ever remembers this that Glenn McGrath Colin Miller opened the bowling to Stuart McGill myself and Colin Miller as the spinners that's how the attack was and all we had to do my biggest worry in that test was Oh no, we won the first test match. We haven't won a test series in, pa- in Pakistan for 39 years. We draw the second test. And then all of a sudden it fell to bits. I think we were eight down 190 or 200 ahead, I think. And Mark Wall was on 90. And Shoah Bakhtar and Wazim Akram, second new ball. And to be honest, I remember sitting there thinking, bugger me dead, I mean, seriously. Supposed to, this is supposed to be the best time. This is, you know, should I be in this position? And I remember having to go out and thinking, no one can see Akhtar. He was 157, 158 all day, and someone put black tape over this corner of the television so we didn't see the speed anymore. And I remember Tub was like, hang in there, hang in there. And I just went out and thought, well, here's a, my mate of 30 years will give me some advice. He's on 90. I walked over to Mark Wall and said, what do you think? What's it, what's it look like? You'll be right. Take center, you'll be right. Just watch the ball. <laughs> really? What, you can't give me any more than that? <laughs> and that is exa- a great example of who he is. And, and I remember surviving that. Akhtar hit me on the helmet. It went over slips. and he just, I just couldn't see him for three overs. And luckily I survived that. And to be honest, if you said to me, did you do anything in the game? The only thing I did was I batted for two and a half hours, got the most boring, horrible-looking 45, but we and Michael Kasperwich and Colin Miller, we all crawled our way, Stuart McGill, to getting 320 ahead or something. And that was enough runs to survive the last day and not lose. And they were five for 257, I think. Mm. End of day's play, we win the series. And it didn't mean a lot to anyone. But that, for me, was there was no better way to finish. And I knew, pretty much knew that would be the end. What a delight it is to have Gavin Robertson as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Plenty more still to come with Robbo after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Gavin Robertson is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Robbo, we talked about your cricket career. So the next stage, you've been in the media for some time now. How did you find yourself getting into the media? Oh, I literally just sort of asked could I start anywhere and went to TUE and did some learning and and uh, they were just magnificent to me. And then um, I did bits and pieces with 2UE or 2GB or uh, and then... In 2003, Graham Hughes called me. Who um, Graham Hughes played cricket and rugby league for New South Wales. Was obviously heavily involved in the media, and he was starting a radio show here in Sydney. And next minute, I was 
on the Super Network doing a show called Talking Sport, but that was 17 years ago. Hmm. So it's just become, it's been a, a, a great, great ride, a lot of fun. I, I think the best thing about radio is you get friends, you connect to people, and it allows you to be just normal and uh, relate to people. So, yeah. Apart from your career in the media, you're sitting here with a GWS Giants T-shirt on. We've mentioned the Giants. How did you find your way there? I was literally going to Cricket Australia. I went to a spin bowling forum, and uh, they'd spoken to me then about taking over the talent management job here in New South Wales. And I thought, of, oh, it could be an idea, but I'd already been speaking to Dale Holmes, who was saying, this AFL thing is going to happen. And I thought, okay, okay. I'll have a listen. And then I walked out of the New South Wales um, offices in the cricket and, you know, 100 metres later, ran into Dale Holmes. And it was sort of like, what are you doing? And then I remember Dale sort of saying, Kevin Sheedy's going to sign. Come and see him talk. And I, straight as it is, I sat at the press conference, saw him talk. And, you know, I got my radio show. We, we were... 100%, let's call us 98% rugby league. Mm. And it was four hours a day dominant. You know, we'd be 100 to 150 calls and emails every day. And I thought, oh, this is a risk, but that's how I live my life. And I saw Sheedy talk and I was like, I just rang Dale Holmes and Deb Keane the next day and said, I'm in. Just tell me what to do and I'm in. You know, and that's really how it happened. I just thought, I'm going to follow this bloke. He's something else. You know, I, I remember them saying to me, Sheeds is old and can't coach. Sheedy was the most astonishing, co- astonishing coach in that two or three years. How he made people, kids that were getting flogged by 100 points not cry, and there was one, players that did cry. How he taught them how unbelievable their efforts were. I don't know if you remember, in the second year, I think we were 51-50 at Geelong, mm. half-time. Our club threw a party that I don't reckon most clubs could have thrown you know, in the next week. Like, it, Could you believe that these little kids that are one year out of high school with a few older blokes in there, only a couple, just did that? You know, all of a sudden, the what Gabby Allen and Mel and Craig Lambert did was they they built the families. I've never seen... You know, like I often laugh how did Brisbane ever let us have the Lamberts I don't even know how that happened but then the the two Lamberts said well we've got four kids but the 47 signed six are mature but the four other 41 can stay here live here eat here do anything here so their house had players coming in constantly and as soon as the player would have a bad day struggle get sick bang we'd fire the parents up parents would live here so we just fostered it for two, three, even four years to grow a family. And, you know, people often say, oh, well, how's Cornelio going to stay there? How's Kelly going to stay there? They are staying there because, like, can you think about, I mean, who did you grow up supporting when you grew up as a, as a boy? Pies. Okay. But can you imagine now if you're player A coming from the Giants and you go to the Pies, your, play, your only legacy when you're 40 is, oh, I was the... 2,378th player they signed. We've got a list of probably 60 to 70 players who have built this club, let alone the coaches and the staff and the sponsors. But Kelly and 
you know, Shiel and Cornelio and Ward and Scully, for example, and Phil Davis and all these players, Cameron, and they've all built this legacy. They're going to be 40, 50, 60, and every time there's functions, they'll be coming back because not only did they have to endure, it was their parents who lived in Perth or Adelaide or Melbourne or Tassie, wherever, and then had to go to the shops you know, three months and six months and a year later. And everyone knew that their, their child's playing for the Giants and struggling. And there'd be the odd negative comment that his parents had to put up with. But the parents also had to endure. And they were supported by just constant support from the Lamberts and the football staff. And they knew where their son was playing was home for them. And they knew that one day their son would have legacy. And that's, to me, if you say, what have you done there? What, what have we done? It's, it's easily a legacy. It's, it's, for me, it's the equal of playing cricket. Easily the equal. Really? Not, not, not as, as, the, as the level of being a father, but it's just underneath it. And, and, you know, I see those players now after being sick and it's like seeing a son, you know. Mm. So I went there today and it's like they're like sons. I, I, I have to get out of that cap habit of calling them boy. Well done, boy. You're doing great or whatever. I've got to remember they're getting older, but there's really a lot special in, and they get to be player number 12 or 28 or 42 or 61. That'll be legacy one day. We'll take our final break, and then I want to talk a little bit more about the Giants and in a broader perspective yeah. and, and the hold that that club has over the city that we're sitting in, mm. the biggest city in Australia at the moment in Sydney. It's all still ahead. Our final segment with Gavin Robertson coming up on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. What a delight it has been to have Gavin Robertson as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Robbo, we spoke about the Giants and your involvement. Do you reckon that we Mexicans, as you like to call us, from south of the border, do you reckon we've got a handle on the handle that the Giants have got in this city? And how big a handle have you been able to achieve in a rugby league-dominated city? Uh, the, the, simp the simple way I could put it is that no... No, they don't know. Um, they've got no idea. Uh, here's the other way I'd put it is, if you're a St Kilda, Carlton, Collingwood, Hawthorne or whatever, primary Melbourne executive and you think you know the game backwards, if, even if you're Eddie Maguire, um, try and do this. Try and be the CEO. Try and be on the board. Try and be a part of the employee squad, the, uh, the, the, the workers. Or have your son or your daughter working and, and battling away. Don't ever underestimate the intensity of the battle. Like It's never going to take over from rugby league in this town. It's never going to take over from Brisbane in this town, I wouldn't think. You're looking at me as though it might. i tell you where it can take over. Um, it's a mum, dad, two kids sport. At our ground, if I go to the West Tigers versus Bulldogs... That's a pretty fiery ground to go and watch a game. It's like going to watch St Kilda versus Collingwood. Bit of a fiery game. But you go to a Giants game, it's mum and dad, two kids in a blanket watching the sport. It's just a family environment, a lot like T20 cricket. So um, 
The other thing is, if you're not a certain weight, size, and power, and the type of parent that can handle, uh, in the political correct world, you're going to guide your child to a sport which is probably a bit safer in, with regard to concussions and head injuries, etc. So, AFL from a cross the section body size is winning with young kids. You know, that's why soccer does so well. But soccer doesn't have the higher platform to go to. You know, you've got to be a part of the 0.018% that make it worldwide, but that's not a lot. That's why so many uh, young people, it's growing here. And I've got to tell you, no way in 1995 I would have thought it would have been here. There's no way you could have got a bet. It would have been bigger than the Ian Chappell, uh, sorry, the Dennis Lilly Rod Marsh bet, <laughs> Ladbrokes in England. Yeah. It'd be 5,000 to 1. Mm. So there's got to be some stage. If I was Gil, I'd have to be thinking, how lucky am I? You know, I didn't have to really... I mean, as part of the commission, yeah, but Demetrio, I thought, had the, had the guts to go out and, and, and cop it and really take it on. So the people, you know, Gil and the whole commission, what an amazing platform they've got. I, I'd, I'd be... If I was them, I'd be excited, proud, and and there's a, there's going to be that wow factor. Look where we've got to. Just finally, um, when I saw that I was going to be talking to you, as I said, I didn't know how you were going to be looking after everything you've been through, and I've been pleasantly surprised. You talked about that whiteboard. So we catch up in 10 years' time. What will have happened in your life? What will have happened in the Giants' life? Take the crystal ball out for us, Robert. Uh, I, th- I think the Giants will get to 50,000 a little bit quicker than the Swans, but the Swans laid the platform of interest, so I, I don't disregard that. Um, what about you? Uh, me, I, I probably could still be at the Giants, and uh, it doesn't feel like a job. It feels like, other than kids and playing a bit of cricket, it's the only chance of legacy, so uh, that's where I aim to be. And uh, I think we'll go from being 98% rugby league on my radio show to being probably 50-50. And if you, mind you, if you're in Sydney and you are any sport, doesn't matter if you're rugby league, cricket or AFL, you've got to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're not winning, then the fans will just have a bit of a break because they've got families and stuff. So that's just life here. So get used to it. It's okay. Winning or losing. We'll have bad times and good times. But, you know, we've got... Um, as I walked back to the Giants this morning, just it was like walking into the backyard and I immediately felt home again. Just good to, to be honest, Pete, good to get out of bed. Yeah, <laughs> of course. And not many of us can realise the severity of the battle that you've been through. You've done a remarkable job to come through it so far. Yeah. And hopefully that progression will continue. It's been too long, but it's been really good to sit down with you, mate. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate it, mate. Gavin Robertson joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life. For Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives. Great time of the year for sport. We'll have another great of Australian sport with us. Same time next week. Hope you can join us then. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.